So do you want to talk about uh, project management and shipping things? I do. It's a topic that I think um, I care about a lot that I feel like I have a lot of intuition for, or I've either looked into it a lot and studied it a lot without realizing that I took it really seriously. That feels, I think, easier to me than it does to a lot of other people that I talk to. Yeah, I think so too. I think I built this muscle up partly just by doing it a good number of times. Like I found that side projects really helped me with this, like doing those codecations with my friend Chris, where we Mm -hmm. had like four or five days to ship something. Yeah. Really helps you kind of learn the prioritization part of it. Yeah. Like figuring out what you actually need to like get something out the door. Yeah, I think that's true. I think like just the general idea of having a time boxed sort of constraint is super important. And maybe that's something we could talk about. Yeah, I love a time box. Time pressure definitely helps. Also, uh, when we started Tuple, we had a certain amount of runway. Yeah. Sort of the, the implicit time box. Was like, yes. Uh huh. Constraints, you know, constraints are good. Yeah, lo- love constraints. So this is something that like you, I think, are good at and that you maybe have seen other people struggle with. So like, what's the kind of core of that? Like, why do you think you're, you're decent at this? And like, what do you see other people doing wrong? Yeah, so there's a handful of things. I think the biggest one would just be not seeing things through or not realizing that you're not seeing things through and sort of trying to do too many things at once. It's really easy to like fall into this trap of getting like six parts of a project, like 70% done, which is actually the same as having nothing done, you know? Mm. Like done is very black and white, but I don't think people look at it that way and i think if you try to make like breadth over depth progress on things you've run the risk of having nothing done until the very end and that's extremely risky i think actually risk is a really interesting word to sort of talk about because i think most of the ideas that i have around how to sort of run projects and get things done are based on minimizing risk you know Mm. because there's a huge risk of things never shipping if you're not careful In terms of like multitasking, one situation I remember being in like a long time ago, a company I worked at was uh, we were running this project and the plan, you know, it was like a a Laravel project, right? Think of it like a Rails app or something. We had like a bunch of features and the plan was like, you know, let's figure out the database schema for like all this functionality. Then why don't we figure out what all the routes should be? Then we'll build all the controllers. Then we'll build all the models. And then once all that's done, everything will just kind of get connected and it'll all Mm -hmm. sort of work which is definitely like not the way to go right because again nothing is done until everything is done it's much better to sort of think about it from like a task oriented approach like what's something that someone needs to be able to do in this thing let's work on everything that we need to work on until someone can actually achieve the thing that they need to achieve with the tool. I'm trying to yeah. think of like a, a specific example related to like an app. And the ideas that are coming to mind are like, okay, so we need people to be able to reset their passwords. The goal is we work until someone can click a button, have an email sent to them, click that, reset their password, and then log in with their new password. Like if that's the most important mm. thing to solve, like we're gonna work on that until it's done. I think the other thing is though, like people often fall into this trap of working on things like that, that actually aren't the most important thing to solve. Yeah. It's funny you picked that example. Cause I feel like that's my canonical. <laughs> don't do this up front. I know it's the canonical. Don't do that. I know I'm trying to think of like, it's tough. Cause like the thing that you should do is something that's hyper specific to your app. Right. Yeah. 
Okay, so here's like a real example. We've been working on like a project at Tailwind Labs, which is like this UI kit thing that we've been building. And to sort of like suss out all the pieces of the UI, we needed to come up with like a demo application to sort of design and build to sort of harvest all the good ideas from. So we decided to build sort of like an Eventbrite style tool. So something for people who put on events to like create an event, they'll have a page for the event, people can buy tickets to the event, stuff like that. So if you're building something like that, I would start by trying to figure out what's one really important piece that needs to get done. And I think if you're thinking of it as like the highest value thing that the app could possibly do is allow potential attendees to like buy a ticket and get a ticket to the event, then you should just build that until it's done. And I think like a trap that a lot of people run into is they see like other features in the app as a dependency of that, that actually don't need to be a dependency of that. So mm. what I mean by this, for example, is, okay, well, we can't have a page where someone can click a button and buy a ticket until like the event promoter has the ability to create new events and edit those events and specify how many tickets are on sale and stuff like that. And my answer to that would be like, SQL Pro is your UI for that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like your MySQL or Postgres like GUI tool. That's like the back end that most apps need at the beginning. And yes, maybe you don't want to like ship that to production necessarily, but you can build the feature of being able to see the event page, buy the tickets and stuff like that by just like getting the data in some other way than like an actual end user UI. If you don't let yourself think that way, I think it's too easy to be like, okay, we're gonna start building this thing that lets people view the event page. Oh crap, we have to be able to create events. So I guess we gotta put that on pause. Now we gotta create events. Well shit, someone can't create an event unless they have an account. So I guess we gotta pause on that and create like the registration flow. Yeah, and, yeah. and you end up in these like very sort of like distant from the core of the app features that feel like this like core supporting infrastructure that you can really easily sort of fake. And fake isn't right. even even the right word, but just like dodge by just assuming it's there or seeding the database or whatever. It, it can become like a real distraction, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So that's like a, an example of a feature that I would probably start with is, okay, let's, and, and the other thing is like, it's not always obvious like what feature is most important. And sometimes there is like, well, we definitely need to have all five of these things before like we could ever ship any version of this. Like, yes, maybe people do need to be able to create events themselves. So we can't ship it until that's done, but you should still do those slices separately, you know? So let's do the event page first, or maybe we do the thing that lets you create an event first. Maybe it doesn't matter which one you do first. It just matters that whatever one you pick, you work on that one until it's done, you know? Right, yeah, I think that's the core thing here. And I think this is like, as usual, like the Pragmatic Programmer book talked about this. Like, you know, I've never read that book. Oh, dude, you have to read this book. I think it was written like 30 years ago, maybe. It's a masterpiece. And they talk about the concept of tracer bullets yes. in it. So it's like, if you're like trying to hit a target and you have like one shot, you have to do all of this planning and simulation and calculation. And then you get your shot and like maybe you hit it and maybe you miss. But if instead you think of like your efforts as like tracer bullets, where like you're taking lots of shots and getting lots of feedback as you go, it's a much easier yeah. problem. And so if you can design your dev process that way, such that you're like getting lots of things fully shipped all the way into production and seeing how they feel 
and what it's like to actually integrate them, that can go a lot better than just saying like, let's plan the whole app out and like work in sort of slices that are not like all the way to production slices, but like let's get all of the database correct and then let's get all of the models correct and like building that way. Yeah, I like to think of like each like thing the app's supposed to do as sort of like the vertical slices and then like all the sort of layers in the system as sort of like the horizontal slices. And I think it's definitely a trap to like build the horizontal slice instead of building a vertical slice. Yeah, that's why I've always found it strange when like teams are really broken up into like, well, there's a back end team, there's a front end team, there's a design team. To me, it's always made more sense to have like a team that's got like someone who knows the back end really well, someone that can do the front end really well, and someone who can do the design, you know, a team that can build a feature, not like a team that can build a layer, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. This feels like it's become a more common approach. Like I feel like sort of agile and sprints and things like this are tending these days to focus on delivering narrow slices of functionality. Yeah. I think the old thing with people like probably called waterfall of like do all the design, mm-hmm. then do all the modeling, then do all of this. And hopefully at the end it all works. I do think the word is is somewhat out yeah. on this, which is nice. But I, I also still think people probably overweight not super important features. Like they could probably ship sooner and faster if they were more ruthless and a little bit more creative about like, oh, we don't really need an admin panel for this. Or yeah, we we know someday there's going to be 10 of these, but right now let's just like assume there's only one. Yeah, there's so much stuff like that that you can fall into the trap of building first if you do this, like if you follow the dependency tree that could actually be solved by like, uh, someone could just send us an email and tell us that they need us to change this data in the database and I'll log into the database and change it. Yeah, and that, that that stuff happened a lot, particularly in the early days of Tuple. We would like design a thing that was really simple, and then we'd be like, oh man, what if people are mad that it doesn't do this? Or like, what if everyone needs this? And we'd be like, well, let's find out. Let's actually ship it, and then see what the customer requests are. And a thing we discovered is we weren't that good at predicting what the requests would be. Yeah. Like there would be things where we're like, okay, we're definitely going to have to, as soon as we ship this, like build a, an option to toggle between these three different options or whatever. And like we just get almost no requests for it. And like, oh, interesting. We, we were so sure that that was next. Yeah. It's quite surprising. I'm pretty sure like we actually didn't build password resets into um, Tailwind UI for first launch, even though literally like we used Laravel for the back end and it's like a one liner feature. You know what I mean? But still, there was a more important line to write somewhere else, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, we, we launched with like a lot of things you would maybe think that you would absolutely have to have, like even like a pricing page mm-hmm. or like a sign up page that was public. We did like manual onboarding of things. I was working in the Rails console, like typing, you know, team.create and like this email address and this many members for m- yeah. many months before we had like a self serve checkout. And I don't regret that because the thing that we had to focus on was like, can we make the client, like the, the yeah. downloadable, installable app good enough that people want to use it? And that was way more important to focus time on and understand before like building a password reset or even self-serve checkout. Because I knew like we're not going to die because we don't have self-serve checkout. But if the app isn't good enough, we'll definitely die. Yeah. Another angle that I kind of like to think about this from that sort of helps with like the focusing on vertical slices and, and focusing on like finishing those vertical slices is thinking about things from the perspective of what could I demo to someone outside the company right now, you know? Mm. If you aren't careful, like you can work for like four weeks and still not really have anything that can be a demo, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, sure. The, the only demo I have is that I can run the unit tests and show you them passing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. 
we have had sort of two two successes in that field or in that area I think that have have been nice. One is we're pretty liberal about making playgroundy prototypes. Mm-hmm. So when there's like an interesting new feature we want to work on and we're not quite sure how it should work, we do spin up like standalone demos pretty frequently. Where it's like just this is what the controls for this would look like. And yeah, it's not really tied into the app and it doesn't really work, but like it gives you the sense of yeah. how it would work. And it's, you know, it's integrated, you know, the UI plus some system stuff and that has been super helpful. Can you think of a specific example of that that you've done that might help people? Yes, a couple things. So one is like we have this ability to choose part of your screen to share. So like rather than like sharing the whole thing, you can like pick a subset. And the it's a little bit of a fiddly thing of like how do you select part of the screen and what aspect ratio and all that. And so I'm pretty sure we started off with a separate repo that was like just the screen choosing controls and iterated on that on its own and then integrated that eventually into the app. Another thing we do is we have a... So we, we run this like desktop client with a UI in it, but we, we actually have a version of that UI that's, that is in a browser. Like you can just view sort of all of the states the UI can possibly be in. Nice. And so we often use that for iterating and just saying like, how do we like this? And then when we like how that is, then it's like, okay, bring that back into the app. Cool. But there's, there's, there's one other thing that I think is kind of along those lines that was, has been helpful for us is feature flagging stuff. Yes. So sometimes I think people, like, I think our tendency is like, we want it to be really great when we release it to everyone and we email, you know, tens of thousands of people about it. And so the impulse is like, well, we're going to iterate on this forever and like really figure it out. But it's scary to just like push it out the door. And we've had good success by saying, all right, let's get something kind of quick and dirty behind a feature flag and give it to like two teams. Yes. And just like make sure this is like roughly right. And then we do a few rounds of that feedback of like, okay, it turns out everyone does actually want this option or they, they don't like the way this is labeled or whatever. And then we get a pretty refined thing that we slowly flip on for more people and then push publicly. Yeah, I was going to talk about that same topic. Actually, I have this in my notes, but like continuous integration, you know, in the truest sense of continuous integration. I think when people hear the word continuous integration, most of the time they think about running their tests in the cloud, you know, but continuous integration is like you have the main trunk, the branch of the project, and you're getting new stuff into it constantly, even if it's not like ready for Mm. every user yet. And feature flagging is like a super crucial way of doing that. I think I can talk about some more stuff related to this too, that's sort of under that same banner. Um, Sometimes you are working on an initiative that just feels like very big and it sort of feels like you have to finish it all before you can ship any of it. Um, I'll give a very specific example of this because I think it'll help people understand, but the Tailwind UI project and not like what people buy, but the actual website where you browse and have your account and all that stuff that was originally built as like a Laravel app with a totally server rendered front end, you know, basically the equivalent of like ERB templates, you know, in Rails. So it's blade templates in Laravel with some JavaScript stuff sprinkled in using Alpine JS for any sort of interactive stuff. As we sort of started building more and more stuff for that, we really wanted to sort of rewrite the front end in React because we built everything else in React. So we wanted to migrate to building the whole thing with Inertia.js, which is a tool that Jonathan, who works with me, wrote that lets you kind of build like this hybrid app where it still feels like a monolithic sort of Rails or Laravel app, but the front end is built in all these like client-side technologies. And that felt at first like, okay, we have to rewrite every single template in the whole app and change how everything's configured, get it all working in a branch. And then when that's all done and who 
God knows how long that's gonna take, merge it all in and deploy it. But I was like very adamant about not doing that. And I said, let's try and write one page in inertia and get it to production today. You know, the first day of the project, mm. no matter like how hard that is, no matter how much weird environment variable custom swapping mechanisms under the hood tooling weird extra you know machinery we have to build to support it let's figure out how to do that let's pick like the easiest page in the app that has no interactivity we picked like i think it was like the license page or something you know that just renders a bunch of text let's see if we can get that using inertia and get it into production so that users when they go to that page they're seeing that version and maybe that means like the performance of the site isn't as good as it was before, because now when you click that one link, it has to load up a different like JavaScript that's not already loaded or whatever. But it's like this temporary sort of downgrade or whatever. And, and that meant that like the first day we had to do all this work to convert the template, but then we also had to figure out how do we integrate the tools so that like Laravel is able to support sort of like both things. How do we make sure certain URLs are rendered with this and certain URLs are not. So you had to write a bunch of code to support that, that if you were just gonna do all of it in a separate branch and then merge it in, like none of that code would have ever had to exist. It's sort of like temporary code. It's like if you're doing like a basement renovation and they put up like one of those big like pillars in the middle of the room to like stop the house from falling down while they do all the work and then they can remove it at the end. It's it's mm -hmm. that type of code, you know? But by doing that, like we were able to sort of pause on that project anytime we wanted without feeling like it had a risk of just like getting out of sync or disappearing because it was in the main branch. It was in production the whole time. And we did pause on it a couple of times because it, it was taking longer than we thought or something more important came up. Of course. But that that meant like we had it in place. And anytime someone had like a spare two hours, they could convert a new page, you know? And it was all real progress. Mm -hmm. There was no risk of like the two code bases getting out of sync or anything like that. So it's a bit of an investment, but 100% worth it in the interest of like de-risking things and actually like locking in these like shippable checkpoints, you know? Yeah, exactly. I like that because it's like, it's like a long running branch is like a liability. Mm -hmm. It's like a thing you need to constantly maintain. Like you need to be merging the main branch back into it or like rebasing or something. And if it falls off for a few weeks, now it could become this like really obnoxious thing that no it's just, it's dead. You know what I mean? <laughs> that no one wants to do. Yeah. But if you've actually merged stuff in to the main branch, like the trunk, and that now you're like, you're good. Like something is, yeah. like you, you checked it off. It's done. It's like now yeah. kind of an asset. And that's like something I like to think about a lot in general with project management is just like this idea of checkpoints to de-risk things. Like think about like, I don't think video games are like this anymore, but when I was a young man, there was only certain points in the game where you could save and you could revert to that save point. You know what I mean? And I think the way a lot of people run projects mm -hmm. is like playing Super Mario 1, you know, where you have to beat the whole fucking game or it's game over, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. But I like to run like things that. more like Final Fantasy 7 or something, you know, where there's like some specific points where you can, you can save and get back to. So one of the ways that we like to do that i think everyone's probably seen that sort of uh you know famous how to build like an mvp image where you don't build a car by first like building the wheels and then building the base and then building the doors and then building the windshield and then whatever the better approach is to build a skateboard then build a bicycle then build a motorcycle then build a car and I think when most people see that, they're thinking about it in terms of like their product, like their whole product. But I think it's important to think about that even feature by feature. 
And what's implied mm-hmm. in that image that I think is important because this is the trade-off is that there's waste, you know? Like I can't reuse all the parts from the bicycle to make the motorcycle. I can't reuse all the parts I built for the motorcycle to build the car. But if I have to stop after the bicycle because something more important is on the radar, the bicycle is still faster than walking was. It still solves the initial problem. So like I can give a very concrete example of when we applied this really recently. We just ran our Tailwind Connect event last week, which is this first in-person event we did. And you know, about a month and a half before or something, we needed to sell tickets for it, you know, so people could register and, and come to the event. And the way we kind of broke this whole thing up is, okay, what's the fastest potentially done version of letting people register for the event? The very, very, very fastest thing is create an Eventbrite account, create the page in Event and Eventbrite. So people are doing some work in my house, as you might be able to hear. Um, and then get it all set up there. And then when we want to put tickets on sale, we just send people the Eventbrite link. You know, we build nothing, we do nothing. It's it's done. Now, we have particular standards for design and stuff like that, that Eventbrite doesn't live up to. So we wanted to do something a little bit better than that. But still, the very first thing I did was set up the Eventbrite page as basically a checkpoint, you know, like if everything goes to shit trying to build this whole thing ourselves, we can always fall back to the Eventbrite page. And at the end of the day, we didn't use Eventbrite at all. So I wasted half a day building the whole thing with Eventbrite, but it de-risked so much of it. And there was multiple like checkpoints along the way. So the next checkpoint was, okay, well, why don't we build our own landing page for the event that kind of gives the agenda and all the information. So at least someone can go to a nice branded landing page and it feels like we did it. And then like the get tickets or register button links off to Eventbrite. And now people are in Eventbrite land after Uh we've at least had a chance to sort of like say, no, like we do care about things looking good and sorry that you have to go over to this screen, but at least at least we made a bit of an impression, you know? And do you remember what happened next? Uh, and then next, I tweeted about that and Ben Orenstein replied and said something like, build a website, you coward, or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I did say that because you were at first you were asking, is there a better event fight alternative? And I was like, build your own website, you coward. And then you built the landing page, but you then linked out to Eventbrite after like yeah. after you click get tickets, and you sent it to me, and I was like, this is an A plus, and then you dump me on Eventbrite, and it sucks. Yeah, and so you got you got some user feedback. Yes, and you were like, God damn it! And I said, Are you sure you can't just build the registration page in like two days? Yeah, and you were like, All right, let me see about it. Yeah, so of course, then we decided let's try and build like the registration process ourselves. So we set up a Stripe account. Um, used like Stripe checkout for that. And, and that was like a ton of work. I don't care what anyone says, man, like integrating with Stripe as easy as it makes it, there's still a lot you have to worry about. But again, we always had this like landing page with link to Eventbrite version to fall back on while we were sort of working on the payment stuff and stuff like that. And then even beyond that point, we could have tried to build this like complicated thing where after someone buys we listen for the stripe web hook and we put some stuff in the database and stuff like that but we didn't we just thought okay for now let's just use stripe as our database because the data is there Mm -hmm. maybe it'll be a hard or a pain in the ass to get the data out of stripe but it is there like we don't have to worry about data loss you know so we needed to like basically give someone a way to enter their information like their name and we ended up designing this like 
custom badge designing experience because we had this like problem where we wanted to know a little bit about the people that were attending and we wanted to put some information on people's badges like where they worked where they traveled from maybe their like social media handle or whatever so other people at the event could sort of just look down and see oh i have something to sort of talk to you about or i know that company or just like a good conversation starter type of thing this is a uh, unrelated, but I was extremely proud of the solution that we we came up with for that ultimately, which was just from a product design perspective. We went through so many iterations of trying trying to figure out what form fields we should put on there and stuff, but everything kind of felt like, well, this might not apply to like, well, if someone doesn't have Twitter, what do they put in like the Twitter field handle? Or if someone's self-employed, like what do they put in their like employer section? Like if they do freelance or whatever. So it just became like hard to come up with something that made sense for everyone. And then we just like really zoomed out and tried to think of what is the problem that we're trying to solve? The problem is we want people when they meet someone that they don't know to have something to provide context or about that person to help them start an interesting conversation. And that might not be the same information for every single person. So we ended up replacing that entire form with just like a big text area that was like a markdown-ish text area where you could just write a couple sentences that you thought would make for good conversation starters with other people and use like markdown bold syntax to highlight things. And we provided like a placeholder example of what we thought would be good. It was something like I'm whatever on Twitter, I am a role at company and I'm here from location. So if that template fit you, it was easy to just fill in that template. But if it didn't fit you, like you knew what to do, you know, you could like massage it and turn it into anything that you want. So people got really creative with it. And it was, it was ultimately like amazing because at the event, everyone had like specific things about themselves that they chose to put there and it was great. So yeah, and you so you had the free text field on one side, and then you had a live preview of the badge on the other, like showing what was going to happen. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. So you could see like you were designing your badge, and you could sort of intuit like, oh, okay, so this is whatever I write here is going to sh- show up on this badge. So it kind of helps you understand why you're writing it there. Anyways, all that to say, that felt like a really important part of the experience that we wanted to figure out, and we didn't want to spend time on like the web hooks and the database and stuff like that. So that's why we said, fuck it, let's just like know that the data is in Stripe. If we need it, we can get it from Stripe, and focus on that badge design experience because that was the more important feature. So we got that built Mm -hmm. and then the event sold out and it wasn't until like later on that we finally felt the pain of not having that data in a database when we needed to export all the badge data because we were actually letting people edit their badge and save and just making an API request to Stripe to like update their customer details and storing it all in metadata and that was totally working. So Stripe was the database. Mm -hmm. But eventually got to a point where it was like, okay, we need to like generate a bunch of PDFs for everyone's badges and send those off to the printer and stuff like that. This would be like way easier in a database. So we write like one little migration script, pull everything down into a database, wire all that up with the actual site so that if anyone else is going to save their badge at this point, it's not going into Stripe again. And we have to go always like make sure we always have the latest data. So we kind of did the old like Indiana Jones swap, you know, (laughs) that was when we finally felt the pressure to actually have stuff in like a local database that we, we could control. So we, did, we didn't even do that until like well after the event had sold out, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's great. It's a great example because it, you, by only working on the thing that you felt was most important at the time, you had that time available yeah. for it. Where if you just like sat down and said, what goes on an event registration site? And you made a list of like 14 things, 
super good chance you're working on stuff that ends up not being as important as the details you later decided were what were going to make this event special and good. Yeah. It's so critical to prioritize and not just like have a list of things to pick from and think that as long as I'm picking something from the list, I'm doing something productive because you're not guaranteeing that you're actually working towards like the next checkpoint. In my head, I sort of think about it as like, if you're playing Frogger or something, you know, like you're on one side of like the road and there's like another side of the road. Of course, like the ultimate option is to just like jump across the whole road, you know? But the way that we end up doing things instead is like you're jumping from like lily pad to lily pad. And yes, when you sum the distance between all those paths, it's going to be way longer in theory than jumping all the way across. But there's like way less of a chance that you don't jump far enough and like fall into the river, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Totally. And like you said, like you, you always have the ability to stop. Yes. And like you have a shippable thing at all times. So if it's, if like something blew up in Tailwind open source and you're like, wow, we just discovered a huge security issue. Everyone drop everything. Mm-hmm. The event's not going to get blown up because you still have a thing that you could ship that day if you had to. Exactly. And that's what I mean with like risk, right? Like that's like the number one thing I'm thinking about at all times is how do we avoid working on this for a bunch of time and, and not have it in a shippable state? Like, how do we get to shippable as fast as humanly possible and keep it shippable the whole time? And yeah, that often means getting clever with like different bits of tooling and stuff that you have to build to sort of support two systems at once or whatever. But it's such a nicer uh, way to work. Yeah. You used a word in here that I want to come back to. Mm -hmm. You said like, oh, I I built this Eventbrite site, which I guess means I technically like wasted that time. Yes. And I would say that like that like wasted thing comes up doing product management for us too. This happened pretty recently, which was there was this like kind of UI paper cut where it's just like this is just kind of annoying. It's not as good as it could be. And I was like, can we just like fix this, this small thing? And someone said, Well, we're pretty sure we're gonna redesign this screen anyway. So like maybe we should just wait until we do that big redesign. And my answer was like, No, no, no. That is like the most seductive trap to fall into i think mm-hmm. it's like it's like trying to be overly efficient don't waste any time because we know we're totally confident that we're going to come back here and like redo this whole screen and i just have like over the years learned that like you're just not that good at predicting like when are you yeah. actually going to come back and actually yeah. redesign this whole screen so if there's a fairly small task that makes the thing better than what's in production right now just do that even if you're pretty sure you're going to come back later and that, yeah. that effort is technically quote unquote wasted yes if it's going to make it better for three days that's worth it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and I'm, that's not to say there's like specific time, you know, considerations for, oh, well, if it's only going to make it better for 24 hours, don't bother. But uh, your, your threshold for like... There, there's some cutoff. Yeah. It needs to be way lower than what it is for most people. Like way yeah. lower, like exponentially lower, you know? Exactly. I think you should just have like not as much faith in your ability to determine like we are going to come back and do this particular chunk of work next because it will be the most important thing. I have just been wrong about that so many times that I now just like, I don't really put much stock in that. And kind of related to that, like that's why I'm afraid to like commit to any project that's going to take longer than the two months that we budget for our work cycles. Sometimes it's like, okay, well let's commit like the next two cycles to this project because it's a, it's a big one. My like risk radar just like goes insane there. You know what I mean? Because if Mm -hmm. we can't have something done and shippable after the first cycle, there's no guarantees at all that we're going to agree that this is still the most important thing next cycle. And then it really, really, really is waste because you didn't even hit like a, a checkpoint where something was, was deliverable. 
So kind of like another thing related to what you were just saying about the, okay, we can make this small improvement, but we're going to come back and like redesign the whole thing later. It's kind of tangentially related, but it got me thinking about it. Something that's like really important to do when it comes to this like incremental delivery stuff is always compare where things are to like where they are in production. Like always compare down, never think like, oh, well, this isn't quite like where we want it to be yet. So I'm not going to ship it yet. Like you always have like the ultimate version of some feature in your head. And it's so tempting to not release any version of it until it's at that level. But mm-hmm. you should never be comparing like, oh, well, we can make it a little bit better and it'd be so much better than what we've built so far. You always need to compare like, what have we built so far to like, what are users using in production yes it's so often that like you can make one small change that you think still sucks but it's still clearly way less shitty than the experience people are currently having totally in production and when you hit that point you need to put it out there the other side of that coin it can also be true where like the version that's in production where there's no solution to some problem can sometimes still be better than like the sloppy shitty solution like we definitely have situations where it's like oh i could just like add this ugly thing to the bottom of the license and this would solve uh, remove this question but it's going to look really bad and it's not going to be responsive or whatever i would rather wait until like the experience is past some threshold so sometimes yes. like the nothing solution is better yes than something like if something makes the whole thing feel shittier and, and sloppier but most of the time it's not the case. It's usually the other side. Yeah, I would agree with that. And yeah, it's like, it's an art. It's not a science. Like we yeah. can't give you these perfect rules or these like things that never have exceptions. Like you're going to have to use some judgment and say like, mm-hmm. is this quick and dirty thing acceptable? Is it over our quality bar? And so there might be times where you say like, yeah, this would improve it in some way, but the overall net effect is not worth it. And like, you just have to like, that's that's why they pay you the big bucks. Mm-hmm. You know what? That makes me think of like another thing, another point that I make to our team a lot is that it's usually better to do like a great version of the simpler or more basic solution than it is to do like a not great version of the fancy solution. A very Mm. specific example is like, say we're working on like a new open source library or something and we need to put documentation together for it. Perfect world, we want to have like a really great documentation website with a custom design and it's all built out with all the navigation, whatever. And so that's like the ideal, right? But the simpler solution is like a GitHub readme that sort of explains everything. I would way, 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 way rather have a very, very, very good like A plus github readme like the best possible github readme solution than like a kind of fucking shitty website you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying so even though like that means everything has to be on one page it's not as easy to like link to things we can't embed like live demos and stuff like that there's all these constraints that you get by being forced to just put it in a github readme i would rather do that version first knowing that we can fall back to that than have to like worry that we're going to have to ship a half-assed documentation site with some design flaws and stuff like that just because like the scope of work is so much bigger these things are linked too by having a narrower slice you can devote more time to quality Mm -hmm. like you can make that trade-off and if your slice is wider if your ambition is much broader you won't have as much time for quality yeah 
like you're you're opting into less quality or or spending a, a significantly more time by having a broader slice versus a, a smaller scope. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And even in that like readme example, the work there isn't really wasted either because it's actually forcing you to to do the hard important part, which is communicate the stuff clearly to the people reading it. And yeah. sure, you might want to make some changes when you move it to a website, but not that much, you know, like most of the writing is still going to be reusable. So I, I still always start there. Like every single new project we've ever created starts as just a GitHub thing before it graduates to having a website. Mm-hmm. I like that. So generally, would you say your your philosophy is work in narrow slices, like work in the smallest thing that you can, make it high quality and get it out to production quickly? Yes, exactly. And, and, don't be afraid of waste, I guess, you know, of theoretical yeah. waste. Yeah, that's a big one. I think that's like one of those like, you know, developers and, and whatnot being optimizers. Mm-hmm. Like that idea of like, oh man, I'm going to do this when I know I want to come back and refactor this anyway. It's like, that's that's waste. Like my, my optimizer brain is so annoyed by that and I totally get it. So, but be aware of that trap. Like be aware of that like uh, bias and, yeah. and go the other way. And then the only other thing I would even I would add that it's just a little tactic that's been helpful for us when it comes to trying to stay focused and work on one thing at a time is is make like work in progress visible and and limit it. So mm. imagine like a Trello board where you have like your in progress column. Like if someone starts something, they have to put it in the in progress column. And once that's mm. at like eleven things, it's like very clear. Like, uh, okay, everyone, we we're not focused right now. You know, yeah. So if you have like a way to visualize all the things that have been started but aren't done, it can help you just realize that that's the situation you're in because that's the natural tendency of these yeah, things. Totally. I think that's a trap we've fallen into. Like that's a that's like a challenge. I would say of of just like building things is having stuff in flight and this this idea of like working fast and in small pieces. Like I wrote this down under, under our feature flags example. It's easy to like accidentally have twenty feature flags of stuff that hasn't quite made it into production. Oh, we're waiting to like fix these last few things before we push it out to everybody. And so like, yeah. I do think you need a little bit of um, a bias as well on like, f- come back and finish the thing actually. Yeah. And, and sometimes like that doesn't necessarily mean finishing it just cause it's been started. It just means deciding to kill it, you know, mm-hmm. because otherwise it's still just open loop, you know, and That's open really loops yeah. I think are, are bad. If something's sitting in the work in progress column and like, you know, in Trello, like we don't even use Trello, but I'm remembering this feature from Trello where there's like card aging, like a card hasn't been commented on or touched. It starts to sort of like deteriorate. Yep. When something is in that state, you just need to decide like, are we going to do this or not? Because right now it's like taking up a spot in our things that we're working on. I know like in like like hardcore Kanban, there's usually like a work in progress limit, right? Like we're allowed to have eight things on the go, period. Interesting. And if, if we want to add a new thing, one of those things has to either get done or get canceled, you know? That's another, yeah, that's that's a good, so I don't think we do the like the kill it thing often enough. We're probably underutilizing that move. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of thinking like, I do feel like that's one advantage of the smaller slices is like you can get a thing out there and like just see like, does anybody care? Is anybody yeah. using this? Are users raving about it? They're not? All right, cool. Well, then kill the rest of it because like, it doesn't matter versus do this huge project, get the same results, like put even, invest even more into it and discover anyway like, that it's, it's not that useful. Well, now, yeah. you, now it feels even worse to like, revert that. Mm-hmm. 
So maybe just to sort of give like another example of something to help kind of illustrate some of these ideas. Another project that we started working on last week on our team retreat is I had this idea for a tool where you could just type in a URL and it would tell you, is this site built with Tailwind or not built with Tailwind? Because I find myself in this situation all the time where I'm on Twitter and some cool new websites launched. I'm on my phone. I want to know if it's built with Tailwind and it's hard. There's no view source on my phone, you know? So the scope of this project is like very variable, you know, like it could either just say, yes, it's built with Tailwind or no, it's built with Tailwind. Or it could say, yes, it's built with Tailwind version 3.2 or yes, it's built with Tailwind and it's at least version three because like we noticed they're using these classes. Or it could say, yes, it's built with Tailwind 3.2.1 and here's the color palette that they're using. Or Mm -hmm. it could say, yes, it's built with Tailwind 3.1 and here's the color palette and the typography scale that they're using. So it could be like an interesting sort of CSS sort of metadata page or it could just be yes or no. And something that we had to work really hard to resist when we were working on it is like not designing the really fancy version first. If we designed the thing that showed you all the colors, showed you all the shadows, showed you the typography scale and uh, all that stuff, then like that's the only design we have to build towards. And now we can't ship anything until we've implemented the ability to extract all that data from the style sheet as well. Mm -hmm. So the most basic version is a yes or no version. So we needed to like design the yes or no version, even if it wasn't our dream version. And that design is definitely like quote unquote waste because it's not the design that we ultimately want. And and once like we build all the other stuff, like nothing from that design will survive. But something like that, where it's like a yes or no design versus like a big page of data design, like there's really not a lot that they have in common that you can reuse. You know, mm. you're optimizing for totally different things. Mm-hmm. In that case, like just thinking about this from a design perspective, I, I think it is interesting because we've only really talked about stuff, I think, from the more the more technical side. But working with designers, it, it can be hard to avoid designing the fancy finished version you know yeah it's it's yeah. a whole full stack thing it's not just like the simple version of the feature or the code like sometimes you have to design a screen that only makes sense for that checkpoint and has to get completely thrown away so that was like another yeah real life situation we ran into with that and yeah that's where we started but now we're at the point where we do have the color palette and we are able to work on implementing the design for that so the first version is gone already it only survived a day, you know, they designed it in the morning. And by like the next morning, we were able to move on to the the fancier version, but I don't regret it at all because at least we had something that we could use right away. So nice. It takes a lot of discipline, I think. And totally, it's a hard thing to do, but the payoff is huge in terms of just reduced risk, reduced stress and increased certainty, you know? Yeah. The design thing is interesting too, because I think particularly as if you're laying out a UI, it's pretty easy to like add a single checkbox that would be like eight weeks of work mm-hmm. on the back end. You know, like it's like if you're not really disciplined about like thinking about what is the small unit that we are going to ship to production and getting feedback from like engineers, yeah. then it, I think it's very simple to build a, you know, what to you as a V1 as a designer. Yeah. And then someone goes, actually, because the way this is modeled, this is like insanely complicated what you want here, even though it looks really simple. Yeah. And, and the reality is like there's a lot of teams where, don't communicate well about those sorts of things and a lot of personality types that just won't push back on that sort of thing. So you really have to be careful because a lot of people, man, you just, you throw something over the wall and they just put all their faith in that that's exactly the thing that needs to be built and that everything on it is equally as important no matter how hard it is and they just go to work, you know? Yeah, yep. 
so you need to sort of build a culture around challenging some of these things and making sure everyone, I don't think this is just a project management job, I guess, like identifying like this whole mindset of like minimizing risk because you need everyone's sort of perspective and their ability to contribute to that based on their areas of expertise. So I think it's a really important thing to understand team wide. Yep. I love it. It's almost like getting something over to engineering is like the production of design. Mm-hmm. It's like you get get this narrow slice like into engineering and get feedback from them and see like is this what we want? Do we need to iterate here? Yeah, yeah. Just doing it all the all the fractal levels. Yes. Ship small pieces. Yep. There you go. Cool. Awesome. Seems like a good place to wrap it. Let's wrap it. Cool. All right. Bye. See ya. All right, so two rich assholes. Yep. Pelagos thirty nine, or Submariner. Oh, oh man. I mean, I've been looking. I don't. I don't. I don't think I could do the Pelagos. I think just when I see them side by side, it's just it's like the more matte finish. It's just it's just like it's not as, as flashy, you know. It's not as flashy. Although it's got the right. It's got the red text, which I think looks pretty sharp. Yeah. And the titanium, I think, is cool. But yeah, I mean, it's like the, the Submariner is like the most classic watch in the world, basically. The Pelagos is uh, supposed to be very light, too, right? Like, I've never actually it is, yeah, held them. It is, yeah, because of the titanium. And I want it to be like fucking, I want it to weigh six pounds, you know? Okay, yeah. <laughs> I think you I think you just want a Rolex Submariner, and maybe you should just accept that. Yeah, I mean... You kind of can't go wrong. It's it's like, it's kind of the watch. Adam of the past would buy the, the Pelagos and then hate it, and then... You know, always looking for, like, I did the dumbest thing ever, dude, when I was, like, younger. The very first smartphone I ever bought, like, the iPhone 3G, I think, was out at the time. I literally never had my own or smartphone at this point. I just had, like, a Motorola Razor. I was, like, 19, probably. But I had this belief in my head because of, like, other areas in life where there's, like, there's always something better that's, like, the the non-mainstream thing is, Mm. you know, that only, like, the real, like in touch people know about is often better. So I ended up buying like some fucking like HTC phone because I thought like based on some like preliminary poking around or whatever, you know, th- you know this is the one that like the real smart people get. And it was fucking yeah, yeah. the worst thing ever. Ultimately, <laughs> like you just get the iPhone, you know, problem solved. I think this is like a, an iPhone situation. It, it might be, although I think in this case, like the whole idea of buying a mechanical watch is kind of ridiculous, right? Yes. Like none of it actually makes any sense. And so you, what you're actually doing here is you're buying vibes. Yeah. Like you're buying a thing that when you put it on your wrist, you're like, this is cool. I like this yeah. silly nonsense thing that I did that makes no sense. Mm-hmm. And so you got to just go based on what makes you feel good. Yeah. It is, uh, it is hard to spend $20,000 on a watch, but... I believe you can do it. I believe I can do it too. Yeah. There's nothing else out there that I actually even like as much as the Submariner. I they're, make, they're not even 20. Aren't they like 14 or something? Uh, I don't know, man. I was looking, I mean, I'm looking at Canadian dollars. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. here's like, oh, that's not the right one. That's in the UK. But yeah, Canadian dollars, they're, they're not worth a lot, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I think, a, I think, a, I think a gray market. Submariner is like yeah 14 or so it's, it's in the teens the GMTs yeah. get up to the 20s yeah people like those ones eh yeah that's that's kind of what I got my eye on 
I like the GMTs. Yeah. Yeah, the Batman's pretty cool. The Sprite is cool. The, the blue one and the green one, I like both of those. Also the Pepsi. I like all of them. Do they actually call them that or is, is that just... Rolex does not. Officially, yeah, those are yeah. definitely not their names, but the collectors totally all use those words. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if I was just going to get like... I don't know. Like, this is like your average new Submariner date on... Now, I guess it depends how important it is if you want to buy it brand new or... Like, I don't think the value is that sure. different between brand new and like gently used, but maybe it is a little bit. Yep. Uh, yeah, this is this is 16K in, in the U.S. for, for what's Yeah. Going. Does that seem... Yep. Uh, this, this is the classic one. Yep. In black with the date. This is... You, you can't go wrong. It's, it's the do everything watch. You can wear it every single day to anything. You can dress it up. Yeah. You can dress it down. Yeah. It's great. Pretty cool. Cool. Yeah, I got an Apple Watch for Father's Day, and I have no use for it, really. I do use it for activity stuff, which I'm finding kind of neat. But I am mm-hmm. finding I do really enjoy having a watch on my wrist. That's, like, been the best takeaway from it you mm-hmm. know which mm-hmm. I, I was expecting to not i was expecting it to feel like just this annoying thing but i actually i really like walking around with a watch on my wrist i don't know okay yeah so, I admit it's a, it's, a, it's yeah. one of your sort of like fashion accessory opportunities as a dude so very few of those yeah you kind of got to take advantage of it mm-hmm. we'll see and yeah i like i like a thing that tells me the time but doesn't like you know hit me with notifications yeah, see, I have all the notifications disabled, so it does nothing for me at all, and I still pull my phone out of my pocket to check the time. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. All right, cool. Uh, yeah, right, I guess like send me uh, the edited one whenever, and I'll get Peter to do the notes again. And sounds get, good. Get her up. This has been two rich assholes. <laughs> Bye. Bye.